Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, this morning, uh, we are closing out the message series that we started uh, back in January entitled, Help My Unbelief. Uh, This has been a seven-part series, and in the seven-part series, our goal has been to tackle uh, difficult questions of faith, tough questions of faith, uh, the kind of questions that keep us awake at night. Now, of course, uh, we heard the questions that we've looked at so far in the bumper video, uh, but I want to share them once more, and they're up here on the screen. Number one, why are Christians hypocrites? Number two, is free will worth all the suffering? Number three, isn't the Bible full of myths? Number four, why would an all-powerful God require prayer? Number five, are we allowed to question God? And then number six, how does a Christian make sense of other religions? Well, having looked at all these questions, uh, we now come to the last question, the final question, and this final question might be the most difficult of them all. Why didn't God save my loved one from dying? Why didn't God save my loved one from dying? And my hunch is that for many of us, in fact, probably all of us, the reason this question is so hard is that this isn't simply some cerebral, intellectual question, is it? It's an emotional question. It's a personal question. Because we've been in situations in the past where we've said goodbye to somebody whom we love. Maybe a parent, maybe a spouse, a relative, a friend, a child. Despite all our prayers that God would save that person. Uh, One of my sacred honors as a pastor, which I try not to take lightly, is getting a front row seat into people's souls. There have been times and moments over the course of my ministry where people have sat down with me, and I'm sure Pastor Barber, you can relate to this, uh, where people have sat down with me and they've opened up and they've shared things with me that I never knew they struggled with. And that was the case with John. And so with his permission, I'm going to share his story today. Um, John, which, by the way, is not his real name, uh, John was a member of a congregation that I served before I came to Asbury. And like some of us, um, John grew up going to church. He was the youngest of five children, and from the time he was born, there was hardly a Sunday when he and his family were not in church. And the reason John and his family were so connected, so heavily involved in the church, was his mom. John's mom was a devout Christian, She was extremely committed to her faith. She would pray. She would read scripture. She would teach her children about God. She made sure, above all else, that she raised her children as people of faith. Well, the year was 1980. John was 15 years old, and he and his family relocated, and they came to the Orlando area, not too far from here. And one of the first things they did is they found a new church home because church was so important to their family. Things seemed to be going well, but then a year later, John's mom was diagnosed with a serious form of cancer. So, of course, she sought treatment. Everybody prayed. 
they put her in the prayer chain at the church, and at first, it seemed as if God had answered their prayers. Because one day the doctor said, we can't find the cancer anymore. But then a month later, the doctor came back and said, actually, we were wrong. The cancer's still there. And it's worse than we realized. It just continues to spread. And we're not able to stop it. And so John, at this point, he was 16, 17 years old, and he continued to pray from the depth of who he was. He said, God, please heal my mom. I can't lose my mom. Please make my mom's cancer go away. But the cancer didn't go away. And then to make matters even worse, during this time that his mom was battling cancer, John had a nephew. Remember I told you that he was the youngest of five children, so he had siblings who were older? Well, he had a nephew who was only eight years old. And the nephew was diagnosed with leukemia. And then the nephew passed away from leukemia. And then as soon as the nephew passed away and they had the funeral service, John's mom was put in hospice. Well, the youth group at the church where the family attended was going to go on a mission trip to Tennessee. And at first, John was not going to go to Tennessee. He wanted to be at home with his mom. And his mom said to him, no, I want you to go. I want you to have a good time with your friends. And so wanting to be obedient to his mom, he went. And he said to me, in hindsight, I realize now what she was doing. She didn't want me to be there when it happened. Because within two days of the mission trip, here I am in Tennessee, I get a phone call. Your mom has passed away. He said, I was 18 years old at that point. I hadn't finished high school yet. I was about to graduate in a few months. And I had lost both my nephew and my mom. Despite all my prayers. Despite the fact that I had begged God pleaded with God to spare their lives. Consequently, he said to me, I turned away from my faith. I stopped going to church. It took years and years before I ever considered going back into a church because I didn't feel that I could ever trust God again. And to be honest with you, he said to me, I'm still not sure if I can trust God. John is not alone. A lot of people have been there. In fact, Maybe some of us have been there. Maybe some of us are there right now. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, Naomi in the Old Testament. Uh, we did a sermon series on Ruth last year. Uh, Naomi is one of the main characters of the book of Ruth. And at the very beginning of the story, uh, Naomi suddenly loses her husband and her two sons. Uh, we don't know how they died. All we know is that they passed away and the deaths were very close to each other. And so Naomi, what she does next is she goes back to Bethlehem where her family is from. And when she sees the people of Bethlehem, they haven't seen her for a while, she says to them, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. Mara is the Hebrew word for bitter. Naomi was bitter. And who of us could blame her having lost the most important people in her world? Folks, this is not an easy question to answer. Why didn't God save my loved one from dying. This is not an easy conversation that we're about to engage in. So by God's grace this morning, I'm going to try to approach this topic from two places. First, I'm going to try to approach it from a place of pastoral sensitivity, because I know that this is a very sensitive topic. And then second, I'm going to try to approach it from a place of scriptural and theological integrity, because I want to be sure that what I say is truthful about God. So pastoral sensitivity and scriptural and theological integrity. So let's begin. And I think a good place for us to start is by clearing up a misconception that we tend to hold about suffering and death. 
In fact, if I might be so bold to say this, Naomi, the character from Ruth that I just mentioned, she held on to this misconception. And that is, she assumed that the reason she had lost her loved ones, her husband and her two sons, was that God had taken them. Listen with me to what it says here. This is Ruth chapter 1, uh, verse 20 and verse 21. Again, Naomi, she has just come back to Bethlehem. She hasn't been there in a while. And this is what she says to the people. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara. As we said, Mara is the Hebrew word for bitter. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? Four times, not once, not twice, not three times, four times in these verses, these two verses, Naomi attributes her affliction to God. Even though there's nothing in the text to indicate that God is responsible for that affliction. As best I can tell, nowhere in the story of Ruth does it ever say that God took her loved ones, her husband and her two sons. She just went along with this assumption that was very common in the ancient world. Job had this assumption too, uh, that if I'm suffering, God must be behind my suffering. If I'm hurting, God must be behind my hurt. And unfortunately, people today continue to believe that, don't they? Somebody dies in a tragic car accident, and we throw out a cliche like, well, God must have needed another angel in heaven. You ever heard that one before? Or somebody passes away after a long battle with cancer, and we say, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Or a natural disaster, like an earthquake, or a hurricane, or a tornado, or a monsoon, strikes a community, causing dozens of people to lose their lives, and we say, we can never understand the will of God. And so we essentially attribute all these bad events to God. We say that God is the one who authored these events, that God orchestrated them, that God made them happen. But what are we saying about God when we do that? Uh, Leslie Weatherhead, um, who was a British theologian and pastor uh, back in the mid part of the 20th century, um, actually he was a pastor in London during World War II, uh, during the Blitz, when the Nazis would bomb London at night. Well, one time, uh, Weatherhead was visiting India, and he met this man there whose daughter had just died of cholera, uh, which is a bacterial disease that affects the small intestine. And understandably, uh, this man was heartbroken. He was grief-stricken by his daughter's death, and with great resignation, he said to Leslie Weatherhead, well, pastor, it must have been God's will that my daughter died. And Weatherhead looked at the man, and he gently responded. He said, my friend, let me ask you a question. What if somebody had crept into your veranda by night, took a cholera germ-covered cloth, and held that over your daughter's mouth with the intent of killing her? What would you say about that kind of person? And the man became indignant, and he said, such an individual would be a monster. And then Weatherhead said, my friend, isn't that what you just accused God of doing? Folks, we need to let go of this assumption that just because, God, just because something bad has happened, God must be behind it. And along with this, we also need to remember as Christians that our primary portrait of God is who? Jesus Christ. Uh, this is up on the screen. Uh, the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1, uh, verse 15, Paul says that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. 
He's the visible image of the invisible God. Paul also says in Colossians 1 that in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul doesn't say that some of God was in Jesus or most of God was in Jesus. He says the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, which means that when we see Jesus, we see God in God's fullness, in God's entirety. And when Jesus was with us on, when Jesus was with us on earth 2,000 years ago, Jesus didn't go around making people sick, did he? He went out of his way to heal them. He didn't go around creating storms. He calmed storms. He didn't take away life. He gave his own life on the cross. To me, it is preposterous and ridiculous to think that the God of love revealed in Jesus Christ would ever be behind our suffering. All right. So if God's not responsible for the tragedy that we endure, then why do we endure such tragedy? If God's not responsible for the tragedy that we endure, then why do we endure such tragedy? It's a fair question. And I think to really answer it, we have to remember the kind of universe that God has set up. And we talked about this, didn't we? The second week of the sermon series. Uh, that God has put us in a world of freedom. Uh, that we're not puppets. God's not the cosmic puppet master pulling the strings. That God has built into every single human being what we would call free will. And the overarching message of the Bible is that we as human beings have used our free will not to follow God, not to pursue God, but instead to rebel against God's perfect love. This is what the story of Adam and Eve is all about. Remember the story of Adam and Eve? God put those two people in the Garden of Eden, and he gave them free range. God said, you are free to eat from any tree here in the garden except for one. The tree that's located in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat from that tree. And yet that became the very tree that Adam and Eve chose to eat from. Now, of course, some people wonder, well, why did God put that tree there? It seems like God was just setting them up for failure. If God didn't want them to eat from that tree, then just remove the tree altogether. It makes sense, doesn't it? And yet, when we read the story too literally, we miss the deeper meaning. What does the tree represent? What does the tree stand in for? The tree in the Garden of Eden represents freedom. This is up on the screen. The tree in the Garden of Eden represents freedom. In other words, Adam and Eve were free to obey God or not obey God. They were free to listen to God or not listen to God. God didn't manipulate them either way. God didn't coerce them or tie their hands. And as we all know, what they chose to do, and when I say they, I really mean all of us, because as theologians will say, Adam and Eve are archetypal human beings, which means they stand in for all human beings. Uh, they made the decision to rebel. And as a result of that choice, the collective choice of all human beings, sin came into this world. And sin has corrupted everything. Absolutely everything. Sin has corrupted our free will. So even though we're still free, we can still make choices and decisions. Our freedom has been compromised by sin. And so sometimes we make choices that hurt ourselves. We make choices that hurt the people around us. But sin's effects go beyond our free will. In a real sense, this whole universe has been impacted by sin. This is the very point that the Apostle Paul makes 
in Romans chapter 8. Listen with me uh, to what Paul says here, uh, Romans 8, verse 21 and verse 22. Paul says, the creation, that would be this created world that God has put together, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation, he doesn't say some or most of creation, but all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And so, in a nutshell, what Paul is saying, it's not just us who suffer because of sin, all of creation. In other words, the whole universe suffers. The plants suffer. The animals suffer. The weather suffers. Which is why theologically, and I'm speaking here theologically, not scientifically, which is why theologically I think we have things like natural disasters, like earthquakes and hurricanes and monsoons. Our bodies also suffer because it means that our bodies are subject to death and decay and all the various things that come with death and decay, like illnesses, cancer, diseases. Folks, it's not that God gives us illnesses or diseases. I say this as somebody whose mother died of cancer when she was 59 years old. God did not give my mom cancer. Rather, these things are a sign of creation's fallenness. And all of us, whether we're Christian or not, followers of God or not, all of us are prone to experiencing this fallenness through a bad diagnosis. What did Jesus say? The rain falls on who? The just and the unjust alike. Exactly. The rain falls on everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't discriminate. Which is why, as Paul says in Romans 8, the whole creation looks forward to the return of Jesus because when Jesus returns, and we have confidence that he will return one day, we don't know when, but he's going to return, uh, that when Jesus returns, this whole universe will be set free from sin's devastating effects. But until that day, until the day of Jesus' return, we experience those effects in the present. And we especially feel them when we watch somebody whom we love suffer and begin to near death. So what do we do? What do we do when we watch somebody whom we love suffer and begin to die? Well, like John did, we pray. We pray. And we keep praying. We pray and we pray and we pray and we pray until we're blue in the face. We pray for God to step in. We pray for God to intervene. We pray for God to give us that miracle that we're looking for. And sometimes, in ways that we don't fully understand, it seems that God answers our prayers by giving us that miracle. Uh, there was a movie that came out a few years ago. Uh, actually, I remember watching this on TV one day with Amanda um, called Miracles from Heaven, starring Jennifer Garner. Anybody ever seen this movie? Okay, a few of you have. Uh, the movie is based on a true story, and it's about this little girl named Annabelle. When Annabelle was 10 years old, she was diagnosed with a rare digestive disease that threatened her life. So her mom, being the good parent that she was, she took her daughter, put her on an airplane, and uh, with her went to Boston. They lived in Texas. They flew from Texas to Boston. They went to the children's hospital there, and uh, her mom advocated for her, uh, made sure that her daughter had an appointment, uh, that she saw a really good physician. And even though this physician was one of the best in the country, one of the best in the world, even the physician was struggling. And at one point, he came to the mom, 
And he said, I'm really sorry to say this, but there's a strong possibility that your daughter might die. No parent should ever have to hear those words. But then suddenly, and I'm not going to get into all the details, but suddenly, miraculously, the disease just went away, practically overnight. Nobody could understand why, not even the doctor. And I do want to acknowledge, folks, that there are instances of miracles like that. I certainly think that miracles like that are possible, that they happen. I think it's appropriate for us to pray for a miracle, to ask God for a miracle. But in my experience, miracles are the exception. They're not the norm. They're out of the ordinary. Not everybody receives that same kind of miracle that Annabelle did. In fact, in that same movie, Miracles from Heaven, at one point, Annabelle checks into the hospital to receive treatment, and she has a roommate at the hospital whose name is Haley. And Haley is about her age, and she has an illness that threatens her life. And then, unfortunately, Haley dies of that illness. So when I was watching the movie with Amanda, when it was over, I just asked the question, okay, I'm really happy for Annabelle. What about Haley? In other words, why do some people seem to receive miracles while other people don't? Before we answer this question, I want to be clear about a few things. Number one, it has nothing to do with how much we prayed. Far too often we think, well, if I pray more, then God's going to give me the miracle that I'm looking for. But God doesn't work that way. Yes, God wants us to pray, but prayer is not, or God is not some cosmic vending machine. Uh, we don't pop in a prayer and get out a miracle. It simply doesn't work like that. So whether or not we receive a miracle has nothing to do with how much we prayed. It also has nothing to do with how much faith we have. When I was in college, I had a friend whose mom died of cancer. And unfortunately, there was a pastor who said to the family, well, if only you had had more faith, she would still be here. A statement like that is spiritual malpractice. Thankfully, that person is no longer their pastor. You know, there are times in the Gospels when Jesus heals in response to the faith, but there are also times in the Gospels when Jesus heals and the faith isn't there. In fact, do you remember the story? I think it's in Mark chapter 9, uh, when the father brings his son to Jesus and the boy is possessed by a demon. And the father says to Jesus, your disciples couldn't heal my boy, and this demon has been wreaking havoc on him, tossing him in the fire, in the water. Uh, please, Jesus, heal my son, if you are able. And what does Jesus say? If you are able, anything is possible for the one who believes. And the man says, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's where we got the title for this sermon series. I believe. Help my unbelief. In other words, the father had unbelief. He had doubt. You know what happened? Jesus still healed his boy. God doesn't answer our prayers because we are holy. God answers our prayers because he is holy. So it has nothing to do with how much we prayed or how much faith we have. It also has nothing to do with how much God loves us because God loves us all the same. God is crazy about all of us as human beings. All right? So if it has nothing to do with how much we pray, how much faith we have, how much God loves us, then why is it that some people seem to receive miracles and other people don't? Here's the answer. We don't know. We don't 
As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we see through a mirror dimly. On this side of heaven, we don't always get the answers that we're looking for. But folks, here's what we do know. Here's what we can be sure of. Even when the miracle doesn't come, even when the physical healing doesn't happen, even when the accident isn't stopped, even when the prayer isn't answered as we want it to be, God is right there. And God is suffering with us. Uh, Max Lucado, uh, who's a pastor in Texas, uh, he tells the story uh, that one time he had a neighbor who had a son who was six years old. And the neighbor and the son uh, were in the backyard, and the father was trying to teach his son how to play basketball. And so the father took the basketball, and he shot it in the basket, and then he said to his six-year-old son, do it like that. It's really easy. And so the little boy picked up the basketball, and he tried to shoot it in the basket. He couldn't get it more than 10 feet in the air. And the father uh, once again demonstrated how to shoot the basketball, and he kept saying to his son, it's really easy, it's really easy, it's really easy, but the little boy couldn't do it. And then finally he got frustrated, and he said to his father, Dad, it's really easy for you up there. I'm all the way down here. We can never say that about God, can we? Because in Jesus Christ, Almighty God became a human being. He walked our ground. He breathed our air. He suffered as we suffer at the cross. We don't have some God who's aloof from our pain. We don't have a God who is detached from our pain. We have a God who is Emmanuel, a God who is with us in the most intimate, relational way. In those moments of suffering, in those moments of hurt, God swoops down, he picks us up, he cradles us in his arms, he wipes away our tears, he gives us the comfort and the peace and the solace that we desperately crave. Uh, part of my inspiration for the sermon series um, came from a book that I read um, a while back, about eight years ago, called Letters from a Skeptic. A son wrestles with his father's questions about Christianity. In fact, the book is mentioned in the sermon notes if you want to pick it up and read it. Uh, the book contains a series of letters between a father and a son. Uh, the father's name is Ed, and the son's name is Greg. Uh, Greg is a theologian. He's a pastor uh, out in Minnesota. And the father at the time was not a Christian. He had a whole bunch of objections to Christianity. And so in the book, Greg takes up his father's objections. And one of those objections had to do with the fact that Ed's wife, Greg's mom, died of cancer, even though the family prayed for her to get better. This is what Greg writes in response to his dad's objection. I think this statement really captures what we've talked about this, mo this morning really well. I guess what I'm saying, Dad, is this. I don't know why God didn't answer our prayers for our Lyle, my mom, your wife, to be healed. I know that if it wasn't for human sin, this painful situation would have never arisen. But more important than this explanation is this understanding. God was suffering with you and me and our Lyle throughout the whole affair. He cries too. And through his participation in our pain, he wants to redeem it. So God wants to redeem our pain, no matter how awful that pain is. Why didn't God save my loved one from dying? Why didn't God offer that miracle that I was looking for? We don't know. But we know where God was, the same place God is now, 
and the same place God will always be. God is with us. God will never leave us, he'll never forsake us, he'll never abandon us. I end my sermon today with the promise that God left us in Jesus Christ. This is from Matthew 28, verse 20. And be sure of this, Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, we take comfort in the promise that you are always with us. There's so much that happens here on earth that pains us, that makes us cry. We're reminded of the words of Jesus that in this world, we will face trials and tribulations and hardships. So God, remind us that uh, you hold us close. You never leave us. That you're not detached from us but that you are Emmanuel. You are with us. We love you. We praise you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.